0: Go ahead and pray before we get started. A lot to cover this morning. Father, I just pray that as we open up your word, uh, as we read through it, as we grab hold of the truth of your promise, Lord, that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts, and give us some very practical things that we can take with us to apply to our lives so that we can glorify you um, and just represent you better. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, the week, as I was preparing the message... Ended a lot differently than it started. And so, because of that, my message was going one way, and it kind of changed midweek and started going another way. And so, we do have a lot to cover, so just bear with me, but I think it's all very good, applicable information. Uh, Quick recap of last week Um, in Philippians chapter 2. I mentioned that at the beginning, it was a bit of a spiritual kick in the pants from Paul to the church in Philippi because whom they had sent to meet Paul to kind of see how he was doing and to bring him a monetary gift, as they were talking, was relaying to Paul some of the things that were going on back home and that there was some arguing going on specifically between two women, um, one's named Eodhia, Eod- Eod- I don't even know how you say it, and the other's in Tyche, and we'll hear more about them in chapter four. But so there was some squabbling going on in the church. And so Paul writes, do all things without complaining and disputing. And as we talked about before, all in the Greek still means all. (laughs) Do all things without complaining and disputing. Uh, We talked about the Hebrew people and how when they came out of Egypt, they were praising. They were all super excited and then they started bumbling and they started grumbling against Moses, complaining about all the things that were happening to them. And at one point they were at it again and... God's anger got kindled against the Jewish people, and it says that it broke out as fire and consumed some of them that were on the outskirts of the camp. And that was before they complained about not having any meat. So they didn't learn from their lesson. First, they were complaining about their circumstances. A bunch of people died. Then they were complaining about not having a meat, and a bunch of people died. They didn't learn their lesson, and so those on the fringe got singed. It can be dangerous to be on the fringe, right? It can be dangerous to be on the outskirts. A lot of times what happens is people who are unhappy, they start to find other people that are unhappy. They start to gather together and they start to complain. It becomes contagious. Um, Misery loves company. And Moses went to the Lord. After all this went down, Moses goes to the Lord and says, listen, I didn't conceive these people. I didn't give birth to them. And now you ask me to carry them like a woman carries a baby. I can't take it. Like, all they do is complain, if this is the way it's going to be for me, if this is how you're going to treat me, then just go ahead and kill me now. Because he says, I don't want to continue in this way and see my wretchedness. He doesn't say, I don't want to continue in this way, take me out because I'm tired of seeing their wretchedness. He says, I don't want to see my wretchedness because I don't like the way that it's coming out of him as he is having to deal with the burden of the people. And so it's a lot for Moses that they're complaining and bickering to him. The key to contentment, gang, the the key to not complaining is contentment. Um, That is the key to not complaining, just to be grateful, to be thankful for what we have. Um, It very much is, and it's a learned behavior. Paul says in chapter 4, as we're going to get to, he says, I have learned in every situation, no matter what I'm in, to be content, to be happy. And that is something that we all desperately need to learn uh, because all of us deal with this contentment. Um, And that's how we should live in a state of gratefulness and in a state of thankfulness so that we can be good witnesses, we can be good representatives of Jesus to the world that we live in. And we're to shine as lights in the midst of that world, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And the conditions for us to shine have never been brighter. They've never been better. The world's pretty dark. And we can shine all the better the darker that it gets. Uh, were to glow in the dark that's what I called it last week glowing in the dark just like the man Moses he would go and he would meet with the Lord he would come out of the tabernacle and his face would be shining so much he had to put a veil on his face and then as he came out he spent time around the complainers right, the Jewish people Then the, the glow started to fade and he had to go back in and meet with the Lord and his face would glow again and so too you and I the more time we spend in the world the glow starts to fade but we need to stay in the word. We need to stay in touch, in relationship with the Lord, so that we can keep that glow and glow in the world that we're supposed to be a part of. And then we ended with Paul asking them to live with the right attitudes and the right actions, to you know, preach the word with their mouths, but also with their walk, because he wanted to be proud of them in the day of Christ, and the day of Jesus Christ, that day where we stand before him and we get rewarded for the things that we've done here on earth. He so says, Listen, when you guys get there, I want you to live in such a way. That I can be proud of you. Because the people that we sow into, the people that we disciple and do life with, those are going to be part of our reward when we get to heaven. Paul says, he says, you guys, you all are my crown and you all are my joy. I want to be proud of you guys when we get there. And Paul is about to uh, share with us. In our portion today, two shining examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus. We're going to wrap up chapter two today. This chapter that has had the theme of having a submitted mind. Jesus was submitted to the father and we're to be submitted to Jesus. And Paul is asking the the Philippians, listen, I want you to be submitted to me, to my authority. I want you to live out the things that we've been talking about uh, to shine as lights, to be of one mind, to be humble, to work out your salvation. So, these two shining examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus. Let's go ahead and read in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to do 19 through 30 today. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how a son with his father he has served with me in the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you, Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may be rejoiced at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. We see at the beginning of this section um, that Paul is showing even his submitted mind by saying uh, he hopes in the Lord Jesus that he will be able to send Timothy to him soon. So even our hopes need to be submitted with the caveat that they fit within the will of the Lord. Uh, Timothy and paradise, two good men. In fact, they were the best men for Paul at that time. And it's interesting to me because one had been with him for a while. We had Timothy, his protege, his right hand man. And then you had Epaphroditus who was really just sent for a short stay. He was sent with a gift and to try to find out how Paul was doing and then to come back to the church in Philippi. And I just think it's interesting that no matter what season we're in, if we're in it for the long haul or if we're just there for a short season, just happy to serve, we should be finding ourselves serving in some capacity, serving the body, uh, submitted to Christ, and serving the body. We're all part of the body. We all participate in taking care of the body and accomplishing the will of the Father. Timothy was from a city called Lystra. Lystra is in in you know, uh, modern day Turkey. And Paul had met him and converted Timothy in his second missionary journey. And his mother's name. Mass in the temple at 11. Mass in the temple at 11. You guys can stay if you want. <laughs> Either way, I'll be I'll be offended if you leave. The <laughs> Timothy's mother's name was Eunice, and his grandmother's name was Lois. And it tells us that he was actually uh, Eunice was actually Jewish, and but he had a Greek father, and we don't hear anything about Timothy's father, so we have to assume that he was probably pagan. So you have his mother who's Jewish married to a pagan guy. They're unequally yoked. Jews weren't supposed to marry the Gentiles, but. What I think is really cool is God can use whatever we submit to. Whatever we surrender to the Lord, he can use. It doesn't matter if it's big or small. And in this situation, Eunice and Lois had, had kept the faith. They were teaching Timothy the Old Testament. And God used it in a big time way. I preached a message a number of years ago on Mother's Day, actually. And I had taken some examples out of the Bible of mothers that had, had a huge impact on their kids and for the kingdom because they remained faithful. And Eunice and Lois were two of those. Eunice's mom and Lois, his grandmother, both teaching him the Old Testament and then along with Paul's preaching of the gospel really cultivated him into a man who would follow Paul and affect the kingdom in a big-time way, especially once his mentor had finished his race and gone to heaven. Um, His Jewish heritage and his Greek education made him uniquely suited to continue the ministry to the Gentile church. Paul calls Timothy his son of the faith, Um, Now, that's not a bad godfather to have in Paul, his son in the faith. I mean, outside of Jesus, there really couldn't be a better mentor than Paul. Um, The dynamic duo of Paul and Timothy uh, are mentioned almost exclusively when it comes to discipleship. We talk about discipleship. We talk about Paul and Timothy. Um, The goal of discipleship, and one of the things that I was going to talk about is discipleship, is reproduction. It's to reproduce. Paul wanted to reproduce in Timothy himself. And that's what Jesus was doing in His disciples. And that should be our goal too. When we find other believers that are less mature in faith and help disciple them to maturity. It's saying that Timothy was almost as good as having him there. He was constantly sending Timothy out. He couldn't be there. So his number one choice was Timothy because he knew that Timothy thought the way he did. He was going to say the same things that he would say. And in verse 20, he says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Apparently there were a bunch of men around Paul. He had other guys around him, but nobody liked Timothy. Um, I think some of the guys that he's talking about are the ones that we read about in chapter 1, where he said these are the guys that they're preaching out of envy and out of personal ambition. Um, They're serving in that way. And he says they have their own agenda. They're more concerned about themselves. They're more concerned about their ministries. And I don't even know if they would come see you guys, even if I asked them to. But I can't send them anyway. I need to send Timothy to you because there's nobody else that I have that's like him. There will always be people inside the church, um, not this church, but the church corporately, who want to further their own agenda. They just want to push their own agenda. And it could be a small church like ours because they might have more of a voice, more of you know, an impact. Um, Or it could be, you know, a mega church where there's just more opportunities for people to serve and they get in there and they want to push their own agenda. They may be more concerned with their own interests than the interest of the people that they're supposed to be serving. There's a big difference between using your gifts, talents, and abilities to further the kingdom and to serve people and just doing it to serve yourself, to get a pat on the back, to make yourself feel better, if that makes sense. And only God can be the judge of that. So he's the one that judges our hearts and that will affect our reward there's no reward for that there's no reward even if you're up doing amazing things if you're just doing it for yourself for your own self-interest there's not going to be any reward from that whatever pats on the back you get here if that's the reason why you're doing it that's your reward we need more timothy's more people who are genuinely concerned about other people's well-being to be those who are ready and willing to go do what we're asked to do and to do it joyfully um, We're to represent the master, not just to represent ourselves. Uh, There was a king named King Henry III, and he was one of the great Bavarian kings in Germany. And he came to the throne fairly young, and he became quickly overwhelmed and burdened by all of the responsibilities of being a king. And he was feeling pressure on all sides, so much so that he walked away from the throne, he stepped down. And he went to a monastery and he started talking to the head monk. He said, listen, all I want to do is I want to contemplate God and I want to worship the Lord. That's all I want to do. And so this head monk, very wise, said, now understand, Henry, the first requirement of a monk is that he be completely submitted. I mean, his life is not his own. Can we agree on that? And he was like, yeah, totally submitted. He's like, well, can you, can you submit yourself to the Lord by trusting me? Yeah, absolutely. Then I want you to go back home. I want you to go back home. I want you to take up the throne. I want you to serve where God has planted you. And he did indeed return. He turned and he served, and he became one of the greatest kings in all of German history. And the epitaph on his tombstone said it all: it "says King Henry III, the king who learned to rule by being obedient." And Timothy, Timothy ended up being a pastor of a church in Ephesus, and he was one who learned to lead. Because he was obedient. He was promoted, if I can say it that way, because he was already doing it. He was already doing the job. He had been proven faithful and reliable. Uh, Verse 22 says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he had served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it goes with me, and I trust in the Lord that um, that shortly I myself will come also. Timothy was promoted because he was proven. He was reliable. Back in Acts 15, Uh, We see an example of why this was so important to Paul. Um, Turn with me to Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas were heading back out on another missionary journey. And this is 15 verse 36. Paul and Barnabas separated. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take them, one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Now, it's interesting because this split actually helped to mature John Mark in his faith. He was kind of immature. Um, and Because later on in one of Paul's letters to Timothy, he said, listen, I need you to bring John Mark with you because he is, he is beneficial to me. He is fruitful in service to me. So he went from somebody who I can't trust. He's not reliable. He left us. I don't want to take him with us to somebody who was useful for him. And so he matured in the faith. Um, It also doubled their efforts because Barnabas and Mark headed to Cyprus to do ministry there. And Paul chose Silas. um, And they went to Lystra. They went to Philippi. They went to Lystra, they went to Philippi. And that's where they picked up Timothy. So he's fresh off a split with Barnabas and somebody that he couldn't rely on. And he goes through Lystra and finds Timothy. Sometimes there are things that happen to us in life and we have no idea why they happened. I mean, it might be a relationship that we thought was going to be solid forever that all of a sudden, you know, has a falling out. Uh, Could be, you know, a ministry that we're part of that folds or a job that we have that we thought was fantastic and they, you know, tell us to get lost. Um, But whatever those things are, we become disillusioned and disappointed. But if we keep pursuing the Lord, if we keep our eyes open... We may just find a better fit, a perfect fit, down the road. If we keep our eyes open, that's what Paul found when he found Timothy. But Timothy still had to make a choice. You've probably all heard of the poet uh, Robert Frost. And you may have even read his poem, uh, The Road Not Taken, which describes two roads that he discovers as he's walking in the woods. And he knows that he can only explore one of those paths. And he tells himself that I'll come back later and I'll explore the other one. But he knows deep down that he's never going to return. And by the time we reach the end of the poem, we realize that he's talking about something infinitely greater than just discovering a couple of paths in the woods. I'll read this last stanza. It says, I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Frost is talking about choice of paths in a person's life. Uh, choosing a road symbolizes Having to make a choice between two things, two alternatives that are equally appealing but lead to very different destinations. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, our, we've been praying for our brother John, John Higgins. And John went to be with the Lord on Friday afternoon. And we've been lifting him up in prayer. And 20 years ago, right, when he was around 40 years old, he made a choice. He'd been living one way in the world. He made a choice to follow Jesus and for the last 20 years today, And that made an internal difference in his destination. And he's standing with Jesus today. That's an incredible testimony that he chose that path. He did not turn from it. And he is in heaven here today. He made that choice. Uh, once Timothy was saved, he had to make a choice. Paul asked him to go with him on his missionary journey to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, he could have stayed in Lystra. He could have stayed there with his mom, with his grandma. could have started a men's group. That would have been totally fine, totally acceptable. Uh, but he chose to join him on the adventure. Um, and it was the path less traveled, the road to discipleship, that turned him into one of the pillars of the early church. Paul had a few good men. And the other one that he writes to the Philippians about is their very own Epaphroditus. He says in verse 25, he said, I thought it necessary to send to you... Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Paul's going to send him back with this letter. He wants to send Timothy too, but he's going to wait until he finds out what's going to happen to him before he sends Timothy. But he's sending back Epaphroditus with this letter. Um, and listen to how he describes this guy. He's only mentioned here in the book of Philippians, but listen to how he describes Epaphroditus. He says, He is my brother, he is my fellow co worker, my fellow soldier, but he's your messenger and he's your minister. I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't take the fatherly tone that he does um, like he does with Timothy. He calls Timothy his son in the faith. Regardless of our position, regardless of our titles, we are all on equal footing at the cross. And what Paul is saying here is, listen to he's my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier. I was thinking about this. It would be like you know, Billy Graham coming to Kearney and standing next to an elder in Kearney in some church and being like, this guy is my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier in Christ doesn't matter our titles. From the outside looking in, we would put Paul way up here. We would put Epaphroditus somewhere around here. But in reality, um, they're on equal footing at the cross. We tend to take people that have certain giftings or abilities or that people flock to and put them on a pedestal. Um, which, is, which is not biblical because God said, um, Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be the servant of all. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. Uh, There will be people in heaven that get rewarded way beyond any of us could ever think or imagine. And we'll be walking by and we'll be like, who in the world is that person? Uh, I read a really interesting story this week about a woman named Pearl Goaty. And Pearl Goaty attended attended a crusade in Los Angeles, uh, I think it was in 1949. And she was in her mid-60s, she was a widow nurse, and she attended a Billy Graham crusade. And when she was there, it went on for a couple days, and the Lord just laid Billy Graham and the men of his ministry on her heart. And so she started praying for them. And she started using her meager income to buy Greyhound bus tickets. And she would travel to where all the crusades were held. She would check into a hotel there in the city, and the entire time while the crusade was going on, she would spend that time in prayer. And she said by the end of it, by the time when she could no longer travel, she had covered 48,000 miles by Greyhound bus just to be there in the city and to pray while the crusades were happening. And even when she couldn't get there anymore, she made sure she knew where the crusade was happening and what time it was going on so that she could spend that time in prayer. And of course, Billy Graham found out about it and got to meet her and he said, you know, during the crusades, I knew that Pearl Goaty was praying for me and whatever was happening, I knew that her prayers were lifting us up and I could feel it. And he said, when she died, I felt it. And somebody like Pearl Gody, who's just praying for the Crusades and for Billy Graham in her living room, is going to have a huge reward in heaven because she was doing battle in the spirit of lifting up that ministry. Um, and that's somebody, I think, like Epaphroditus, somebody who serves. He embodies for us a level of um, selfless sacrifice, regardless of position, regardless of the recognition that we might receive. And this is the only place that he's mentioned. Him. He's obviously trustworthy. He's obviously, you know, a courageous guy. He was trusted with was probably a sizable sum of money to take to Paul. And if you think it's tough living as a Christian in Philippi, welcome to Rome, where they're actively killing Christians. Right? So the guy was trustworthy. He was also courageous. Uh, but Paul is sending him back to his hometown, just like the monk sent Henry back to the throne, which is interesting. Why did Paul send him back? Verse 26 says, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Epaphroditus was distressed not because he was ill, but because his friends had heard that he was ill. Mm-hmm. Um, you may have had this happen where some people you love, Heard something about you that wasn't good. But they hadn't heard how it turned out. They hadn't had, had heard that everything had been okay. And we can imagine their anxiety and their worry. And so we start to worry because they're worried. And that's what we have here. And he wants to go back and ease their fears that he's okay. Uh, so he's longing to go back home. And Paul's making it easy for him to go back home. He said, listen, I'm going to send you back home. And I want you to take this letter to let everyone know how I'm doing and to give them some instruction. So Epaphroditus was near to death. How can he be near to death if he was with Paul? I mean, if I had somebody that I wanted to pray over me when I was sick, I would want Paul. Like, he'd be at the top of the list, you know? This is interesting. In Acts 19, we were in Acts 15. I'm going to go to Acts 19 now, um, verses 11 through 13. This is an incredible verse. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. That's crazy. That's amazing. Now, unfortunately, that's where some kooky TV evangelists, wolves in sheep's clothing, have used this and said, listen, if you will send us money, we'll send you a holy handkerchief, and you'll be healed. Right? And that's unfortunate. Um, those guys ain't going to have a reward. Not at all. Quite the opposite, actually. Um, so, Paul wasn't doing it for money. Obviously, he was being led by the Spirit. And he's sending this out, and people are getting healed left and right. And yet, sometimes the healing didn't come. Sometimes the healing didn't come. Uh, he tells us in Second Timothy, he mentions just one sentence, that he had to leave Trophimus behind because he was sick. He's traveling with a guy named Trophimus who's helping Sir Paul, uh, but he had to leave him behind. And even Timothy himself, I mean, his protege, his right-hand man had some ailments. In first Timothy, he tells you he listen, you need to take a little wine. You need to take a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. Frequent ailments. That's interesting. That's crazy to me. This is an important section. It's something that I don't want to skip over. Um, this is kind of where the message kind of uh, diverted this week. But why do some people get healed and some people don't. One of the greatest questions in the church has been debated for generations. Why do some people get healed and some don't? Um, I knew going into this midweek that this would be challenging subject matter. Um, I certainly didn't know at the time that we were going to be the loss of a friend. Um. I've only known John for about nine months. Him and his family have been with us since the very first service. They were the very first Sunday they were here, and I loved seeing him. And he always had a smile on his face, and he was always very encouraging and helpful. And I just, I'm going to miss seeing his smile. Um, We've been praying for him for months, and we were hoping, we were praying for a miracle on this side of eternity. So what do we do uh, when that doesn't work out? Paul said that God had mercy on Epaphroditus, had mercy on him. I just want to touch on a few things as it pertains to healing, because if we aren't viewing healing, if we approach it the wrong way, it can really wreck our faith. It can. um, If we're not approaching, if we're not viewing it um, in a biblical way. So, simple question, does Jesus still heal people today? I think most of us would say yes. Jesus still heals today. Uh, When he was here on earth, he was constantly performing miracles. Constantly. Um, One of the reasons people were drawn to Jesus and the Bible tells us that he is the same yesterday and today and forever. And if he was the same yesterday and today and forever, he was healing people while he was here and he was walking in the Holy Spirit. And then when he left, he gave us the Holy Spirit. Why would he not be healing people today? There are people who believe that the days of healing are over, and I'm not sure how they come to that conclusion because it's very obvious that he's doing miracles today. So I want to touch on just a few questions on this topic. First one is, okay, Nathan, if Jesus heals, why do I still get sick? Why do I still get sick? Psalm 103, verses two and three. We'll turn with me to the book of Psalms, 103. 2 and 3, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Don't forget. Remember. Because He is the one who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. He forgives all your sins and He heals all your diseases. Now, this is the Bible. The Bible doesn't make mistakes. It's not wrong. There are no errors in it. So these two, I think it's interesting, these two, forgiveness of sins and healing of our diseases, are paired together over and over again in the Scriptures. They go together. So I want to show you a couple examples of this. There are multiple passages that talk about our deliverance from sins and sickness, and they're connected to Scripture. We don't have time to go through them all. Uh, One of them is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And then in 1 Peter 2.4, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed. It's interesting because Isaiah writes, looking towards the cross, looking forward, you are healed, you are going to be healed. And Peter writes, looking back at the cross, you have been healed. He bore our sins, you have been forgiven, and you have been healed. So there's a connection between healing spiritually and healing physically. Yes, he forgave all of our sins, but sometimes it's hard for us to believe that he healed all of our diseases. It's easier for me, it's easier for me, I'll be honest, to believe that Jesus forgave all my sins, but how did he take all my illnesses? Matthew quotes Isaiah in Matthew 8, chapter, 7, or chapter 8, verse 17, speaking of Jesus. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Sins and sicknesses mentioned together. Now, I want to look at three things in particular. Jesus bore our sins and took our illnesses. Why do I still get sick? Well, I'll ask this question. Do you still sin? Yes. I hope we all answered yes. We still sin. Jesus died for our sins. He bore our sins on the cross, but we still sin. Now we still get sick. Why? Why do we still sin? Why do we still get sick? Very simple reason. We live in a broken world. A sin-filled, fallen, broken world. Three things that I'm going to talk about. Penalty, power, and presence. The penalty of sin and sickness. The power of sin and sickness. And then the presence of sin and sickness. The first one is the penalty. We have been saved from the penalty of sin and also from the penalty of sickness. Jesus took our penalty on the cross. He took the punishment that we deserved. So He took the punishment, the penalty for our sins and for our sicknesses. This is an important point because sometimes people get it wrong. Um, God does not punish you with sickness. He doesn't punish you with illness, I would say that he cannot punish you with illness because he punished his son, Jesus, on the cross. He took the penalty. He will never punish you as a believer with sickness. That's not the way it goes. So that's the penalty of sin and sickness, the power. Right now, we are being saved from the power and, you know, and the penalty of sin and sickness. Jesus holds the keys of death and the grave. When he rose again, when he died, when he rose again, he holds the keys of hell and the grave. We, the Bible says we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved in that day when we're taking out of here. So we have been delivered from the penalty. We are being delivered from the power. I mean, right now, the more time we spend in the word, the more our faith grows, the more power we have to overcome sin in our life. And the more we have the power to understand that healing only comes through the Lord by grace. By grace. Through faith. We have been saved. We are being saved. And we will be saved. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now the third is the presence of sin. There's the penalty of sin, the power of sin, which we've been delivered from. And then the presence of sin. This hasn't happened yet. We still live in a world that... Filled with sin, that is filled with the presence of sickness. Now, Jesus heals, so how should we receive the healing? How do we receive healing? Now, if there's a connection between our healing of sin and our healing from sickness, then I would ask the question how did you receive your salvation? We receive our salvation. We find this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul gives us the answer. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God so that you can't boast. Some people do a lot of boasting. When we get to heaven, nobody will be boasting because we will know, first and foremost, that it is all by His grace. Grace through faith. Not from faith. If we were saved from faith, if we just had enough faith, then that would be works, And then you would get the credit because you have such faith. But that's not the way it works. It's by grace through faith not from faith. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you just needed more faith. That's not the way it works. That's condemnation. People that are already going through, you know, grieving and loss and hardship, and then you tell them that they should have had more faith? I mean, come on. That's not the way it works, and it's not biblical. We were saved by grace through faith, and we receive healing the same way by grace through faith. It's just his mercy. Uh, when, the, when the sick would come to Jesus, oftentimes they would say, have mercy on me. Jesus had mercy on me. They were seeking mercy. And one of my favorite stories in the New Testament is about a guy named Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. And he's sitting along the road. Jesus um, had come to a city called Jericho. We've all heard of Jericho, the ancient city. And Jericho at that, at that time, still a big city. Um, It was a huge trade route, and so there were all kinds of people, all kinds of traffic. And Jesus had come to Jericho, and as he was leaving, a huge crowd was following him out of the city. And there was Bartimaeus sitting on the outside of the city next to the road. And he hears this huge commotion. There's lots of people, but this day was different. And he starts to ask, what's going on? And he hears the name. He hears the name, Jesus of Nazareth has come, and he's walking by. And Bartimaeus knows the name. It had become quite famous, especially for healing people. They had all heard of him. And so as he's walking by, he starts shouting at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And his name in the Hebrew is Yeshua, right? Yeshua. He starts screaming out, Yeshua, son of David, have mercy on me. And it's interesting because the name Yeshua is the name Joshua. Yeshua is Joshua. Joshua has come to Jericho. That's pretty cool. And he says, Son of David. And that's the phrase that caught Jesus' attention. Because Son of David was another name for the Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to come in the line of David. He was called the Son of David. And so when he says, Yeshua, Son of David, Jesus stops. Now if you think back to Joshua in the Old Testament, in Joshua 10, We see his biggest miracle, Josh's biggest miracle, as he makes the sun stand still. They are in a battle. They're engaged in a battle with the Amorites. And as they ambush them, they're winning the battle. They're winning the day, but the sun is going down. They're losing daylight. And Joshua knows if the sun goes down before they completely win the victory, they're going to have to do this thing all over again the next day. They're going to escape in the night, and they're going to have to reamass their forces, and it's just going to mean more losses. So he looks up at the sun and commands the sun to stand still. And the sun stands still, and they win the victory completely. I think that's interesting because as Bartimaeus cries out, Yeshua, son of David, not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N of David, stood still. And he turns around and he calls Bartimaeus and he comes up and he gets healed. I think that's an amazing story. Jesus had mercy on him. He cried out for mercy and Jesus gave him mercy. Well, what if the healing doesn't come? Well, then we trust God. We trust the sovereignty of God. We trust in His plan. A lot of times people cried out for mercy. Sometimes people didn't even cry out. Sometimes Jesus just went by and touched them. There was a man who was sitting, this, this story, i thought about this for years and years and years. There was a story of a man who was at the pool of Bethesda and he was just sitting there. He'd been there for decades just looking for healing. Lots of people at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus walked up to one and asked him if he wanted to be healed. And Jesus healed him. The only one. That was the only one he healed. At the pool of Bethesda. there's lots of people there. Why did he only heal one? We have to trust in his sovereignty. So, okay, if Jesus still heals, and we need to ask for it and receive it by grace through faith, how many times should we pray? Like, how should we pray? In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that he was given a thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know what that was, but he was given a thorn in the flesh that was to keep him from being conceited about the revelations that he had seen. A messenger of Satan that was tormenting him. Now, does, does God let that happen or did the devil make that happen? Yes. <laughs> yes. The devil attacks us all the time. But nothing happens without God say-so. Nothing happens without him saying, okay, without it being part of his plan. And it tells us that Paul prayed three times. He prayed three times for it to be taken away. And on the third time, God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. We pray until we get the healing that we desire or until we have a peace from God that this is what He has for us, this is part of His will for our lives, that His grace is sufficient for us and that His power is made perfect in our weakness. I remember distinctly the day that Alicia and I were sitting in the hospital hospital room together and um, I think it was in the morning and Alicia had turned to me and she had said, you know, I I was praying last night and I heard God say to me, what would give me more glory if I healed Levi now and you got to take him home? Or if I bring him home now ahead of you and people watch you live out your life in the face of loss, still praising me, still honoring me, still bringing glory to me in the face of that. And at that moment, Alicia and I had a peace about the situation. It didn't mean we liked the outcome. We weren't happy with it. We didn't like it. We would have preferred the healing, but it didn't come. And at that point, we had a peace that that's what God's will was and his grace was going to be sufficient. We may not get the mercy, but we will always get the grace. Always. His grace is sufficient. It's all about his sovereignty, not our spirituality. And we do get healed ultimately in heaven. Sometimes people will think, well, that's kind of a cop-out. Like, he didn't get healed here, but yeah, you say he gets healed in heaven ultimately. And we're all going to be healed ultimately. Isn't that a cop-out? People who are not saved are not going to be healed. They're not going to be healed. We will be healed when we stand in his presence. And that is the ultimate healing. If you think think back at Lazarus, God raised Lazarus from the dead. That's awesome. That's incredible. He came back from the dead, but you know what? Lazarus had to die again. He was in paradise. He was in heaven. And it tells us that Jesus wept. When he came to the tomb, Jesus wept. Why? Why did Jesus weep? I mean, he knew he was going to bring him back from the dead. And I have a couple thoughts on that. And I can't go into right now. But I think one of them might have been that he was getting ready to pull him out of heaven. And back into a sin-filled, sickness-filled world. And he knew what that was going to be like. In this first chapter, and Paul um, says in chapter 1, verse 20, Whether in life or in death, Jesus will be honored in my body. Whether in life or death, He will be glorified. Um, Okay, verse 28. I am the more eager to send Him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing Him again, and that I may be, be less anxious. So receive Him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. We're almost done. It says, uh, I want you guys to rejoice. I want you to revive your joy and be less anxious. Paul was anxious about the situation. That's interesting to me. He was worried about the churches. He was worried about the situation. And that brings Paul kind of down to earth for me. Um, he even tells us don't be anxious, but he himself kind of wrestled with that. So we all do. It's our flesh. It's our sin nature. Um He was concerned, but now he has joy over his healing. And he says, I want you guys to have joy too. In Romans 12, he tells us, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And those are not always easy things to do. Quite often, they're difficult things to do. And we talked about it last week because when we get hyper-focused on our circumstances and when we get discontent, Then we lose our compassion. When we lose our compassion, then it's hard for us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Which is why we need to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the Lord and to serving other people. And that restores our compassion and then we can rejoice and mourn with others. But we have to choose joy. Paul is telling him to receive him um, and to honor him because he nearly died for his service. Um, I'm not sure if there was some kind of misunderstanding or confusion as to why it was taking so long, or maybe that he was more of a burden to Paul than a help, but he tells them, receive him well and honor him. We should really refrain from criticizing any of the servants of Jesus, because we don't know the whole story. We don't know the whole thing. We don't know what's going on. Jesus does. So we should just honor them and recognize the work they're doing as unto the Lord. Epaphradix wasn't doing it for his health. I mean, it was a long journey. It was a dangerous journey. And he was doing it because he wanted to serve Paul. Paul wants to honor him when he returned because he risked his life. I think Epaphroditus was a bit of a gambler. He was taking some risks. Um, And I think at this time we're about to wrap up so we can bring the kids back to worship can come back up. Um, He was taking some risks. I was reading about a group of Christians in the early church called the Parabolani the parabolani and I think a Packard would have fit right into this group. They were a group of brotherhood that would risk their own lives in taking care of those that were terminally ill or that had died. And so they were serving at great risk to themselves because these were contagious, And then burying those people who, again, they could catch something and themselves be terminally ill. And yet they were reaching out. They were the ones that were doing the work at great risk to themselves. I just thought that was an interesting analogy. There are people around the world that are risking their lives for the gospel, but it's not a gamble. It's not a gamble because they know and we know where we're going to land. We know where we're going to land. It's not a gamble. It may be risky. It's not a gamble. Uh, I read a story about impalas, impalas African impalas. Do you know that impalas can be kept in a relatively small area at a zoo with a shrub, with a wall of shrubs about four feet high? Now, impalas can jump 10 feet high and 30 feet long. These guys don't have a problem jumping, but they can be kept in a relatively normal um, enclosure just with a wall of shrubs. And the reason is because Apollos will not jump if they can't see the landing zone. If they can't see where they're going to land, they won't jump. And so they put this hedge, these bushes along, just high enough to where they can't see the landing zone, so they don't jump. But just because we can't see physically, spiritually, we know where we're going to land. And so, this life, as a Christian, we may take some risks, not as much as other people around the world. But we can take risks for the gospel because we know where we're going to land. These two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, lived lives that were worth imitating. Great examples for you and me to follow of discipleship and for serving. One was elevated because of his consistent obedience over time, and another served in relative obscurity, but not to the Lord. Not to the Lord. Both held in very high regard by the man who wrote most of the New Testament. We need to be a few good men, a few good women, ready and willing and able to do whatever the Lord asks us to do. To take risks for the gospel, even if there's no recognition in it, because there will be a reward in heaven. That's where our reward is. And we have brothers and we have sisters moms, dads, kids in heaven right now that are experiencing their fort and we're going to meet them there. And that's an exciting thing. It's the hope that's inside of us that keeps us going. Amen. Let's sing one more song. Singing with joy now. Our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Praise your